0: Galatians chapter 2. We've been singing and asking God and praying that he would come and open blind eyes and break chains and that Christ would be revealed and Christ is revealed in the gospel as we look at God's word. So we believe that eyes are going to be open, chains are going to be broken, that Christ is going to be revealed and not so much because we claim The promises of the Bible, but more so because the promises of the Bible claim us. There's a big difference. Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we do trust in your promises. We cling to them, but so many times we don't. And yet, because of who you are and your character, your promises claim us. And that makes all the difference in the world, God, because we... Fail repeatedly. But the good news of the gospel is that our relationship with you is not dependent on what we do. It is all about what Jesus has already done for us through his life and death that he already lived. Help us now by the Holy Spirit to gaze our eyes once again upon your son to think about... All that he has done for us so that we would be empowered to live our lives today for your glory and for our joy. Do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Reformed theology, which is the kind of preaching and teaching that you will hear here at Grace, has been captured in the acronym TULIP. Perhaps you're familiar with it. The T stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement. The I stands for irresistible grace. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints. And and that's a good summary of Reformed theology. I think there's a better way to say it. I might tweak some of the terms in there a little bit, but it wouldn't spell tulip, so I won't. But tulip is good, and, and I hope one day to do a series On these very five points. Tulip is a good summary of Reformed theology, but since I'm a guy and naturally want some manly acronym to describe my theology, I was delighted several years ago when this new tulip surfaced. Now, ladies, you may want a flower for your theology, and I'm okay with that, but I think men would rather have something a little meatier, a little saltier a little greasier, right men? So there's hope, because bacon is the new tulip. (laughs) Several years ago, somebody came up with this and changed the tulip into a bacon acronym. B stands for bad people, A for already elected, C for completely atoned for, the O stands for overwhelmingly called, and the N stands for never falling away. Bacon is the new tulip in Reformed theological circles. And the whole reason this new acronym came about is because of the resurgence of bacon in pop culture. It's like everybody woke up one day and realized that bacon is good, even though we had it in our fridges for years. You can find bacon gum, bacon cologne, Bacon jelly beans, bacon frosting, bacon candy necklaces, bacon lip balm, bacon band-aids, bacon dental floss, bacon air freshener, bacon lollipops, so on and so forth. If you want anything bacon, you can probably find it today. And, And all the bacon lovers, with their bacon breath, said, Amen. The Apostle Peter would have loved to have lived in 2013. And here's why. He used to hate bacon. He couldn't eat bacon because it was forbidden in the Mosaic Law. But then one day, as Acts 10.13 says, Jesus showed up in a vision And told Peter that he could eat unclean animals now, that he could have bacon. Jesus showed up in a vision in Acts 10.13 and said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Arise, kill and eat. Acts 10.13 ought to be the verse that we use for men's ministry around here. That's a man's man verse. Arise, kill, eat. Jesus showed up and told Peter to get up. And try some bacon, ham, sausage, pork chops. Jesus showed up in a vision and told Peter that he was now free to eat these unclean things. But Peter was hesitant. His whole life he avoided unclean animals. His whole life he avoided the pig. He avoided bacon. I think Peter would have agreed with Samuel Jackson's character in the movie Pulp Fiction when he says, I don't dig on swine. Pigs a filthy animal. And Peter avoided unclean animals because he wanted to obey the law of God. Because he loved Yahweh his Lord. He knew that Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus forbid Jews from eating an unclean animal like a pig. But In Acts 10, Jesus showed up and was now telling Peter that he was free to eat unclean animals. Jesus showed up and said, because I'm the second Adam, Peter, because I'm the God-man, because I fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws, all the civil laws, and all the dietary laws in the Mosaic law, you are now free to eat these things. Whereas the pig was once off-limits. Once a filthy animal, now it was considered clean. Peter was now free to eat bacon. Eating bacon is a part of the gospel. Fast forward a few years after Peter has been enjoying some pork chops and apple sauce. for any of you brady bunch fans you'll recognize that after he's been enjoying blts and ham sandwiches and sausage and eggs then one day he suddenly stops eating all of this swiney goodness and when peter did that he got out of step with the gospel he was actually distorting the gospel twisting the gospel perverting the gospel And we do the same thing all the time, which is why we need to be reminded of this truth. Don't distort the gospel by the way that you live. Anytime we live in such a way as to try and earn God's favor in his love by coming back under the law, when we do that, we pervert the gospel. Anytime we think that justification, being made right with God, being declared righteous in God's eyes, anytime we think that justification happens because of what we do, then we distort the gospel. Sinners are always declared righteous because of what Jesus has done and never because of what we do. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul will tell Peter When he confronted him. And he tells us that in verses 11 through 14. So look at verses 11 through 14. When it says Cephas, that's Peter, that's his name. Look at verses 11 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. But when Cephas, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's what's happening in the context. Paul is continuing part of the story that he started in Galatians 1.10, where he said, I am not a people pleaser. I do not live for the approval of man. I just want to please God, and I'm preaching the exact same gospel that all the Jerusalem leaders who came before me preached. So Paul continues in that story by telling the Galatian churches about something that happened in Antioch, When the Apostle Peter distorted the gospel at a church potluck. And here's what happened. Peter had been enjoying the benefits of the gospel, which now included enjoying the benefits of bacon... And since, since Jesus appeared to him in Acts chapter 10. Now, we don't know how long uh, the time was between when Jesus appeared to Peter in that vision and when the events that are happening in Galatians 2 happened. But at the very least, they happened at least 14 years based on what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. So for at least 14 years, Peter has been enjoying BLTs and bratwurst. He was on the Gentile diet, and he was loving every minute of it. Peter enjoyed eating with Gentiles, non-Jewish people, because his whole life he had avoided them. They were filthy dogs, the Jews thought. So he's enjoying this fellowship with Gentile Christians, eating their food, enjoying the food that they cook. But then, all of a sudden, he just quit cold turkey one day. He wouldn't even hang out with Gentile believers. What happened? Well, some of the Jews of the circumcision party, Paul says here, were true believers who still struggled with being allowed to eat with Gentiles and to eat Gentile unclean food. They had grown up their whole life and they had avoided these things, so it was hard for some of these Jewish Christians to come to grips with the freedom of the gospel because of their cultural upbringing. We know that Peter probably knew these people of the circumcision party, knew that they were Jews, and he feared what they would think of him. When they showed up at his house and saw that he was not only eating with the Gentiles, but he was eating bacon. Notice, though, it was the fear of man. People-pleasing that caused Peter to pervert the gospel. So imagine Peter is at his house where he's hosting his annual meat fest called Hamageddon. Peter has all of these christians over most of them gentiles and they're cooking up bratwurst and bacon and and sausage and and he gets a text from the apostle james and james says i'm sending a group of jewish christians to your house and their eta is any minute now peter and so peter freaks out and 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 runs out all of the gentile people Starts chasing everyone out of his house. He opens up his windows to air out his house because he's been cooking bacon and sausage. And we know bacon and sausage will smell up your house real fast in a good way, right? So he's, he's opening the windows, trying to air out his house. He's spraying Febreze everywhere, burning candles, lighting incense, doing everything to cover his tracks so that when these Jewish Christians show up, they won't be able to tell that he's been with Gentile Christians. Paul says Peter was acting like a hypocrite, and even Barnabas was caught up in his hypocrisy along with other Jewish Christians. And then Paul says, I heard about it, and I confronted him to his face. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's what Paul is saying. Peter and and all the rest of you that are here, you are Jewish and you are enjoying the benefits of the gospel by eating like a Gentile. But now that you're free in Christ, are you really trying to tell Gentiles that they have to become a Jew and adhere to the law and that they can't eat bacon and sausage now? You're trying to turn Gentiles into Jews, and even you don't want to live like a Jew anymore. Now, how did Paul describe their behavior? He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Literally in Greek, it's not ortho walking with the gospel. The prefix ortho means straight. Our English word orthodoxy comes from this. We get our word orthodontist. We go to the orthodontist to get our teeth straightened. So Peter and all those caught up with him in this hypocrisy were not walking straight in the gospel. For Peter... It was a cultural difference that became more important than the gospel. Because of his Jewish upbringing, Peter was allowing cultural differences to disrupt gospel unity. Peter was basically saying, in order to be acceptable to God, Gentiles must become like Jews. You see, cultural Differences and cultural preferences can easily cause us to get out of step with the gospel because when we do that, we promote our cultural preferences over the preferences of others. We see this in our life by the kind of people that we avoid in our lives, who we avoid at church, who we avoid at work. We often think we are better than others. We think we are superior because of our preferences and and our tastes. Contemporary worship is better. It's superior to traditional music. Traditional worship is better. It's superior to contemporary. Styles of dress, race, age, you fill in the blank. Where do you feel a sense of superiority in your life? Is it a style of music, style of clothes, a style of church? Wherever Christians place a higher priority of preferences over the gospel, they are out of step with The gospel. So let's personalize it. Whenever you and I, whenever you place a higher priority of your preferences and your tastes over the gospel, in that moment, you are out of step with the gospel. You are twisting the gospel. You are perverting the gospel. You are distorting the gospel. For Peter, it was a race issue. They're Gentile and I'm Jewish. And I think our way is better now, even though for 14 years I've been living like a Gentile. Don't distort the gospel by the way you live. Well, if you know Paul, you know he can be long-winded. Which is why I believe what he says in the rest of chapter 2 from verses 15 all the way to 21 I think he's still talking to Peter and all those who were present with him there. See, unfortunately, our English Bibles stop the quotation marks at the end of verse 14. And they give us this paragraph division. And like in my Bible, they give you this little heading for mine. It says justified by faith. And it kind of disconnects from that. But it does not do this in the Greek language. All that Paul says in verses 15 to 21, he is saying to Peter and still reminding him about how human beings have a tendency to get out of step with the gospel. So look at verses 15 and 16. Remember, he's still talking to Peter here. He's saying, Peter, we ourselves know we, are, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, you and I know, Peter, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, that's you and me, Peter, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is still talking about how sinners are justified in God's eyes. He's telling this story, this conversation that he had with Peter to remind the Galatian churches that no one is justified. No one is declared righteous. No one is made right with God by keeping the law. Paul is driving the point home to Peter In verses 15 and 16. And he's saying. Peter you and I weren't born as Gentiles. We were born in the covenant people of God. We were born Israelites. And yet you and I both know. That no one can be justified. No sinner can be declared righteous through obeying the law perfectly because no one can obey the law perfectly. Peter, only Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And it is faith in him, in his perfect life for sinners like us, that we are justified. Peter, it's all about what Jesus has done, not what we do because we can't do it. Peter, we can't obey the law perfectly. You know that. Paul's talking about justification here. It's central to the gospel. As John Calvin says, justification, being declared righteous, is the principal hinge by which religion is supported and the sum of all piety. Whenever the knowledge of it is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed. And the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Paul would agree with Calvin. Because Calvin has been influenced by Paul. Justification by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ is the hinge of the gospel. If it goes, everything goes. And we are all lost and doomed to hell. Paul knows that he once tried to be justified by the law as a Pharisee. Paul knows that he and Peter once tried to be good enough to earn God's favor through the law. And so he says in verse 17, and Peter, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly Not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul is saying that in his endeavor to be justified, in his endeavor to be made right with God by obeying the law, he was exposed by the law to be a sinner, a law breaker, a rule breaker. By trying to obey the law perfectly, Peter and Paul were exposed as sinners by trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. Peter and Paul were exposed as sinners because that's what the law does. It exposes us as sinners, as lawbreakers. But because the law exposes us as sinners does that mean that Jesus is a servant of sin? Because God's good, gracious, perfect law exposes us as lawbreakers and sinners, does that mean that God is a servant of sin? Paul says, no way. And Paul says, Peter, if we try and rebuild the law in order to gain righteousness, Paul's saying to Peter, we will only prove once again that we are sinners. That's what Peter was trying to do. He was trying to Quickly, in that moment, go back under the dietary laws of the Mosaic law. And by doing so, he was proving that he was a sinner. Why? Because that's what the law of God does. It exposes us as sinners. So Paul is saying, Peter, if you try and rebuild the law, if you try and come back under it for acceptance with God, don't you see the logical conclusion? It will expose you as a sinner, as a lawbreaker. You know this, Peter, because you walked with Jesus. Paul is trying to remind Peter that when they both believed in Jesus, they died to the law. They died to the law that had been at the very core of their life, growing up as nice little Jewish boys in Israel. They died to that. Look at verse 19 all the way to verse 20a. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is so important for us to see that the first part of verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, goes with verse 19. Because Paul is talking about law and death. Understand that when Paul says that through the law he died to the law, Paul is not saying that Christians are no longer called to obey the law. We are called to obey the law of God. But we don't try and obey the law of God in order to get God's favor. The law exposes us as lawbreakers and sinners and drives us to Jesus the Redeemer And then when we trust in Jesus, the Redeemer, he drives us back to the law to obey it and live for him. Paul is not saying that Christians are no longer called to obey the law of God because we are. God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, are binding. They were binding on Adam in the garden. They're binding on every human being that's ever been born into this world. Ten Commandments aren't just for Christians. They're for every human being because that is God's moral, perfect standard, who he is. And so we are to obey that, but we come back to it because we've been driven to Jesus, the Redeemer. And then we obey it with joy because when you read Paul's letters... He's going to direct Christians back to the law of God. What Paul is saying here is that when he died to the law, he died to the law as a way of being saved, as a way of being justified, as a way of being declared righteous. Paul died to the law's condemnation. The law of God cannot come and condemn Paul anymore because he has been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. He says he was crucified with Jesus on the cross. When Jesus died, Paul died. All of the penalty that the law demanded for lawbreakers like Paul and like us, all of that was met in Jesus. Jesus paid it all. And in that moment, when Jesus died, Paul says, I died to the law's condemning power paul is saying the law can't come and knock on my door anymore and say you owe me you owe me because paul is saying that debt has already been paid you can't condemn me anymore law because jesus has been condemned for me you see the law demands the death of all lawbreakers and Paul is saying that when Jesus died Paul is saying I died with him. Paul is saying he died for me so the law can't come and demand my death anymore. The law cannot come and condemn Paul anymore because he has been united with Jesus. Just as Paul was once united with Adam in his sin and united with Adam in deserving death because he was a lawbreaker just like Adam. Now Paul is united with Jesus in his death in life. Now Paul says, I live to God. See, the curse of the law that fell on Jesus has been taken care of. The law cannot come and condemn Paul anymore because Jesus bore the curse of the law for Paul. Adam was Paul's representative in the garden when he sinned. Jesus was Paul's representative when Jesus, one, fully obeyed the law, and two, when Jesus bore the curse of the law for disobedient lawbreakers like you and me. The curse of the law is gone for believers. Are you a Christian today, a believer, a disciple The condemnation of the law is gone. As Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means the law can't come anymore and say, You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And yet we open the door to that all the time, don't we? Christian, if you feel condemned for your sin, you are not living in step with the gospel. If you feel like you must be punished for your sin, you're not living in step with the gospel. If you feel like you have to obey in order to get God's favor and to earn his love and keep his love, then you're not living in step with the gospel. Because Jesus already bore the curse. Condemnation is gone. But we have these unworthy feelings and thoughts, don't we? Even your unworthy feelings will put you out of step with the gospel. Your unworthy feelings will put you out of step with the truth of the gospel. Your feelings and your thoughts will say to you like they say to me, you have to do something now. You have to pay for your sins. You have to wallow in your sins and earn God's forgiveness. You ever feel that way? Of course you do. No, you don't have to feel that way. You ever feel like, I can't come into his presence? Good Lord, what I did yesterday, what I said what I thought, what I did, and the corrupt motors that were driving everything that I thought said and did, how can I come into God's presence after the way I put my kids to bed last night? Get back in that bed. Jesus loves you, but get back in that bed. How can I come into your presence, God, when I've talked to my wife the way I have and I've called her the names that I've called her? God, how can I come into your presence when I can't stand that person at church? I hate them. How can I come into your presence, God? You ever feel that way? You you do because you're a sinner. You do bad things, really, really bad things. Walter White on Breaking Bad is not the only guy doing bad things. We all break bad. But the penalty for your sin has been paid. Jesus took the curse of the law for us, and we have died to its condemning power. Don't distort the gospel by the way you live. Don't pervert and twist and distort the gospel by feeling like you are under condemnation. Jesus was condemned for you. You are forgiven. You are free. You died to the law so that you could live to God. You were crucified with Christ Now you live for God, not to earn his favor, not to earn his love, but to enjoy his favor, to enjoy his love. And so what you have to do when you have those unworthy feelings is acknowledge, yes, I am a sinner, but I'm not condemned anymore because Jesus was condemned for me. You rehearse the gospel and you cut that off. But understand this, though. You do the living. Look at verse 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Sadly, there's a movement in Christianity that hijacks this verse and takes it out of its context. Remember, Paul is talking about justification here. Sanctification is not his point. He's ranting about justification, how sinners are made right with God. Now, sanctification is intrinsically Related and connected to justification, but Paul's not talking about sanctification per se here. He's talking about justification primarily. And secondarily, he's talking about how our justification, our right standing with God, how that then fuels. Our sanctification, But sadly, there's a movement that quotes these verses and stresses reaching a deeper place of spirituality or a higher level of consecration to the Lord. And proponents of this view often talk about a particular moment in time when they reached this deeper consecration. And they stress that you don't live, but you do live. There's tension here. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, and we'll see it next week in the beginning of chapter 3, Christ, through the Holy Spirit, lives in me, but I live. That's what Paul is saying here. These verses about being crucified with Christ are true of every believer, not those who reach a place of deeper consecration. These verses have already happened to every single believer in Jesus at the cross, not at some special moment of consecration in their life. It's happened to everyone who's a believer. As Tim Keller says, there's an apparent tension in these two sentences. Paul says, I no longer live, and then he says, the life I live. But in fact, this tension describes the way we should see our lives as Christians. Verse 20 on its own would suggest that we just sit back and let Christ give us the power to live rightly. Verse 21 alone would mean that we have to do it all ourselves. The two sentences, which are one sentence in Greek, taken together, show us that we are to live out our life on the basis of who we are in Christ. Jesus lives in us, but we live I live my life in my body. Am I indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Yes. We'll see that next week in chapter 3. The Spirit is in me, but I live. Don't distort the gospel by saying that you don't live. Clearly, Paul says that he lives his life in his body. What he means when he says that is this. It's captured in an ESV study Bible. What Paul means is that his own personal interest and goals no longer direct his life. Rather, Christ who lives in me now directs and empowers all that he does. The gospel directs the course of Paul's life because he's united to Jesus. And what kind of life do we live in our bodies? Paul says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We live our lives in our bodies empowered by the spirit of God as we rehearse the gospel and that's exactly what Paul is doing when he describes Jesus as the one who loved me and gave himself for me. He's just rehearsing the gospel. How did Jesus love us and give himself for us? We saw it in Galatians 1-4 a few weeks ago. He did it through his active and passive obedience. Jesus lived the life that we could never live because we are sinners. That means he obeyed the law perfectly for us. And Jesus died the death that we all deserve because we are sinners. Jesus took the curse of the law on himself himself. For us because we're sinners and when you live your life by faith in the son of god you're doing it because you are united to him so that what happened in jesus life and death has already actually happened to you You live your life in your body by faith when you remember, when you rehearse, and when you believe what Jesus did in his body. You live your life in your body by faith in the Son of God when you remember and you look back and you think about and believe all that Jesus already did in his body. You live by faith that what Jesus did with his body you could never do. The life of Jesus that Christians are supposed to be focused on is the perfect life that he has already lived. That should be your focus. Your focus is to be on a past event. The perfect life that Jesus lived for you in order to justify you and make you right with God. Your focus is to be on the life that Jesus has already lived and the death that Jesus has already died. Why? Because it's the past work of Jesus that justifies us and makes us right with God. We could never do it. And that's why we must always look back at the perfect life that Jesus has already lived. And if you think for a moment that you can obey the law perfectly in order to get right with God, Paul says in verse 21, you're nullifying the grace of God. If we think that we can pull off perfect law-keeping in our body, then Jesus died for nothing. If you could attain righteousness, then Jesus died for nothing. If you could be justified because of what you do, then Jesus died for nothing. Living like we can gain and maintain God's favor and love by what we do nullifies the grace of God. Living like what we do for God makes us right and keeps us right, perverts the gospel. Don't distort the gospel by the way you live. And one way to avoid perverting the gospel is by personalizing it. Can you say today, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me? Can you say that today? Can you say that by faith? The Son of God loved Benji Magnus and gave himself For Benji Magnus. Can you say that today? The son of God loved me. He gave himself for me. When you focus on what Jesus has already done for you to justify you and make you right with God, it will give you wind in your sails for sanctification, becoming more like him. When you focus on the life that he already lived for you and the death that he already died for you, then you'll want to live for him now in your body. The problem, though, is that we focus so much on our sanctification. We focus on our progress, our growth, our holiness. How much of the Bible do we read? How much do we evangelize? How much do we pray? How much do we give? How much do we serve? And when you focus on that and you become morbidly introspective, it will do one of two things. When you get your eyes off of Jesus and you talk to people about how much you read the Bible, how much you pray, how much you do for him, so on and so forth, it will do one of two things. One, it will lead to despair. Because when you look at your life, all you will see is failing after failing after failing. It will bring despair because you're like, I don't pray enough. I don't read the word enough. I don't serve enough. I don't give enough. When you're morbidly introspective, you'll either despair or secondly, you'll become prideful. Look at how much I read the Bible. Look at how much I pray. Look at how much I give. And so how come you don't give as much as me? How come you don't read the Bible as much as me? How come you don't pray as much as me? You'll be prideful. Look at Jesus' life, his past life, that he already lived for you to make you right with God and keep you right with God. The problem is that we focus on ourselves and what we do. And we never grow in holiness then. As and Chivijan said, we actually begin growing in grace, growing in holiness when we quit obsessing about how much we're growing in grace and how much we're growing in holiness. You'll start reading the Bible more when you quit focusing on how much you read the Bible. You'll start praying more when you stop focusing on how much you pray. That's how you grow in grace. That's how you grow in holiness. That's how sanctification works itself out in your life is looking at the past life of Jesus that He lived for you in order to justify you. And when you focus on that, you'll suddenly realize you're doing those very things. It's just gospel rehearsal. As John Owen says, Holiness, growing in grace, sanctification is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Don't distort the gospel by the way that you live. You look at the past life of Jesus, that he lived for you to justify you and make you right with God, and then you let that empower you to live your present life now. That's the gospel. Tim Keller says, the inner dynamic for living the Christian life is right here. Only when I see myself as completely loved and holy in Christ will I have the power to repent with joy, conquer my fears, and obey the one who did all this for me. The inner dynamic of the Christian life is right here in Galatians 2. It's when you see yourself as absolutely, completely loved and adored by the God of the universe, because of Jesus, and when you realize you are absolutely 100% holy, pure, and blameless in his eyes, when you think about that, then you have the power to, and I love his phrase, repent with joy. Who does that? Those who have their eyes on Jesus. You repent with joy, you conquer your fears because you know he loves you and accepts you, and then you start obeying the one who did all of this for you. His grace is enough. His grace is enough. May the Spirit empower us to live our lives for His glory and the good of others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, all that He's done in His past life. May we gaze upon that. May we be fixated with that. May we be obsessed with that with the fact that he perfectly obeyed the law for us to bring us to you. And he perfectly satisfied the demands of the law by taking the curse of the law upon himself to be condemned for us to bring us to you. May we be obsessed with this truth with your son and then may that put wind in our sails to live for you. May we be overwhelmed with your grace to us that we get to a place where we say, I don't have to, I want to do these things. Help us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.